As an osteopathic physician, he wants to get to the bottom of why people feel the way they do. His clinical research and practice has led him to believe that all physical ailments have their origin in the mind, particularly the unconscious mind. This has led him to pursue a better understanding of the human mind, and in March, he will be finishing his master's in humanistic psychology. He believes in what he calls a somato-emotional reflex. In other words, tension in one area of the body will influence the entire body because the body is a whole. Muscle tension is the somatic side of repression. Our musculoskeletal system absorbs our emotional strife. It's the emotional landfill. But before change can happen, there must first be acceptance. Enjoy this thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Travis Gordon. Welcome to episode 72 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Green, a second-year osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine resident at Michigan State University. We are bringing back our guest from episode 16 titled, Taking OMM from the Rolling Hills of Michigan to the Jungles of the Yucatan Peninsula. He continues to practice medicine in Merida, Mexico, in the beautiful Yucatan Peninsula. We're looking forward to meeting him in person and listening to him speak in the upcoming National Convocation in Colorado Springs, where he will be giving numerous lectures. The title of his first talk being Muscle Behavior and Overuse Syndromes. And the second talk, the topic of today's conversation, Muscle Function and the Mind-Body Connection. We welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Travis Gordon. Hello. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's a, thanks, man. Thanks. I, I don't know how to follow that. That's that's like, wow, I sound almost important. That's great. Yeah, you're you're an important an important doctor. We're looking forward to listening to you speak in Convo this year. All right. Well, you know, me too. Honestly, to to be perfectly honest about the whole thing, I uh, I think about it a lot. It's a big deal to go on, you know, that that venue, let's say, where I've seen so many of my osteopathic heroes and the the very giants and gurus who kind of have helped form a lot of the way that I think. And I see this whole game of osteopathy and uh, to be up there on that stage is going to be like a whole different world, man. I don't know that I'm ready for it, but I guess I better be. So we're going to go for it. But yeah, it's it's intimidating, but it'll be fun. I'm excited. Yeah. Now, how would you feel if you were a second-year resident going up on that stage? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That'd be that would be even a little worse then. I mean, I, uh... Yeah, Doctor. So, Doctor DeStefano, you know, she's chairing the convocation. She is our chair here at Michigan State University, and sure. and the president asked her to be the chair because you know he wanted her to share a lot of the ideas that she's written about in Greenman's Principles of Manual Medicine. And, and she said, well, I, I can't be in every place at once. You know? So she, she essentially asked her faculty and her residents to uh, speak uh, and you know, talk about a lot of those principles found in Greenman. So yeah, sure. um, I've got like imposter syndrome because I'm talking about pelvic stability. 
Nice. Yeah, I didn't even know. I I overlooked your name on there. I didn't even know you were on there. I've been well, disconnected in general, so it's not surprising, but. It's the last day. It's the second to last talk of Convo. And it's Sunday at 11. Well, that'll so. take the pressure off a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Some people will have ducked out. You got that going yeah. for you. But it's going to be, you know, uploaded and documented digitally forever. So that's that's still there. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that part. <laughs> no pressure. No, I went the wrong way with that. My <laughs> no, that's fine. Not helping. That's not totally helping. fine. Well, Dr. Gordon, it is, it's February 15th and I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, you know, we're, I'm here in East Lansing and we all know about what happened on Monday with the, uh, the mass shooting that happened on campus. Sure. And, you know, you being a MSU alum, and running the Michigan State University Clinic. And I just wanted to ask you, as we start this podcast, you know, a, you know, what's going through your mind? What's going through your heart? You know, what are, what's your reflection on, on what, what has happened here in, at Michigan State University? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the, the question. I mean, it's so fresh in our minds and our hearts. It's, it's hard not to talk about it, you know? Um, so it's a very, valid topic and, and question and and I really don't consider myself an expert and I don't I don't know who really would be who deals with these things on a on a you know relatively frequent basis and I hope no one but um you know the I'll say I'll start with the way the whole thing kind of ended was you know the the assailant taking his own life which seems to be the way it always goes in these and it um, you know, and, and it, I guess it kind of makes sense. I'm assuming whether this person is of sound, you know, mind, body, spirit, all this, um, or, or if they're in an active psychotic break or if they're having, you know, their consciousness becoming real for them. It seems that in most of all these cases, they, you know, end up taking their life. And like I say, not surprisingly, um, but the one thing that went through my mind was you know after just all just how horrid it was and and i'm getting these like updates and they're kind of somewhere conflicting and back and none of them were good and i'm i'm good i don't want to even just i'll hear it when it finally you know comes out Uh, it was just taking my heart in different directions and um you know the the stats and the numbers were you know better and then worse and i'm like okay but when finally you know i i heard you know what it all happened and they took his own life my first honest thought was, well, that's a bummer. I wish that we could at least have, you know, one of these people that, that for whatever reason, end up doing such a horrendous thing, survive it so that we could figure out what's going on. Is there anything in common between them that they share? Is that, you know, I know we all have our own theories and there are other people more involved in these issues who have probably more valid, maybe slightly more accurate theories but what really happens where did this go wrong like is there you know a systematic deal that we can fix here so to prevent this because as angry and as just afflicted as we all are with this what's the solution what's the way out i guess you have to to have a treatment you need a diagnosis and and well if they've committed suicide then we can't really get that information from them and that was to me just the, the like ah once again i you know and and not because 
it honestly wasn't like, I want to see him suffer. Like he made other family. No, none of that. It wasn't really like a vengeful thing. It was just like, are we ever going to know what's really going on with these people? And maybe it's different for all of them, or maybe there's like a common thread. Um, I just, I would just like to know, I think, I think we need to know, you know, to try and prevent this. And, and it's, you know, and, and I think about the, um, you know, just you, you think of most immediately, you know, the people whose lives were ended. You think about the people who were injured. You think about their immediate families. Then you think about all the kids who were near there, right, at the moment and witnessed this and the PTSD and everything else that is going to come from that. Um, and then you think about the other friends and family and all the acquaintances of these people who something happened to were either injured or killed. And th I mean, this is like this this reverberates throughout the universe because we're, we're all connected. I, I do truly believe that. And this is just an example where you think of how many people directly or indirectly were, were known, you know, to these people that this happened to. And it's just like, it's just heartbreaking to think about, but it's, I think by that same virtue, that connectedness is, is what we need to have and what maybe we've lost a little bit of. And hopefully if there's anything good that can come from this, it's, it's that maybe we can reconnect and, and rethink things and not come from a place of vengeance um, and, and hatred, because obviously we've seen enough of that already, but just, you know, what, how can we fix this? What can we do better? You know, and yeah. a lot of that has to do with, with psych, <laughs> certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A little bit about what we're going to go into today. Uh, yeah. I, I think that you're right. I think we're a lot of us, most of us are asking the question, why would someone do such a horrific thing, you know, to, to young adults in the prime of their lives with so much potential and so many aspirations and, and we, we'll never know. We will never know. You're right. I mean, the assailant took his life, so we, we won't get answers. And yeah, it kind of leaves this void isn't the right word, but this never ending curiosity, not curiosity, but, but question of why did this person do that? Sure. And it, it's just, it is a little bit unsatisfying not to know why. And, and, you know, I drove past uh, campus today. I drove past the union building where, um, part of the shooting took place and sure. you know you see the police cars you see the the yellow tape and I saw a lot of students actually taking candles and taking flowers and putting them around the building and but it was it was like this experience of wow I'm in this place where you know there was incredible like evil occurred here and then at the same time, I'm seeing these acts of kindness and love and compassion by the students. And it's like this kind of this like life, you know, this there's good and there's evil. And, and it, it's kind of been, you know, in, in battle, I guess. Sure. Um, you know, it's right now I'm I'm just getting the, like immediately when you said that I'm getting the, kind of thinking of a Martin Luther King Jr. quote. And here it is in February. And, um, you know, he says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. 
And that one, I just, oh, I get kind of choked up when I say it. It just always gets me because it's, we forget about that. And it's so easy and it's tempting for me, for everybody, I assume, um, to, to just want to, you know, some, some sense of revenge and just, you know, they made me angry and this is the way I feel and that's fine to get that out. But, but I hope we can come to realize that if we do the same thing back or if we just continue with these spiteful feelings, we're, we're never going to get out of it, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and it's, it's very interesting. I think what you say about the, the connectedness and that each one of our actions, whether good or, or evil or bad, you know, has reverberations. You know, I know that I'll, I'll never be able to. Well, I don't think it's going to be easy to go back into the union building and, you know, have not remember what happened there. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. Um, and I, and I can't imagine for the students that are frequenting that building, you know, for studying or, you know, to get their snacks or to eat a meal with that. I mean, yeah, this is just going to be a completely different experience. So yeah, it'll take time. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of us, you know, are still kind of in that shock phase of, of what, what, uh, what occurred. It hasn't completely, you know, registered, at least for me. Um, but yeah, with time and, and, um, yeah, with time, I think it will. So yeah, anyway, you know, we send our, our thoughts and our prayers to Ariel Anderson and Alexandria Verner and Brian Frazier and their families and friends. So. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, uh, we just had, uh, Dr. I'm going to switch gears again here. Dr. Mark Beard was just down there with you in the Yucatan <laughs> Peninsula. And he came back and I said, Mark, you got you to gotta talk to us about what you learned from Dr. <laughs> Gordon. And, and he, you know, he shared what he learned and what he saw you do and how you treat. And I was just really, really intrigued by this mind-body approach, which I really want to learn from you learn more learn more about it from you yeah but, when are uh, you coming down here by the way ben <laughs> yeah i <laughs> speaking of which let me put you I, on the spot here <laughs> i i really really want to go down there the the challenge is is that i'm hopefully going to apply for a sports medicine fellowship following um residency and we only get four weeks of away rotations during the year uh, so maybe Dr. Zatkin will make an exception for me, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about doing two weeks in one place that I'm, you know, Virginia college of osteopathic medicine, two weeks in university of North Texas, two schools that I'm really interested in. And then sure. I don't have any more time, Dr. Gordon. So yeah, yeah, I know you gotta be applying. God, it's like, you can't even end after it's like, you got into residency. Now you got to do fellowship. You know, it's like you got to do the application <laughs> process all over again. I didn't have to go through that. Thankfully, like after, I did two residencies in one and it was like, that was enough, you know, but like, I couldn't imagine a fellowship, man. That's yeah. I'll, I'll allow that exception. We'll still try for it. Maybe Zach can, will be so, you know, stoked with uh, the presentation and whatever at Convo <laughs> that he's just going to be like, you know what? I, I want to go down there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you I, won't, pull I won't keep my hopes up. For me. You got to pull <laughs> some strings for me. I'll do my best. But anyway, before we get into that, uh, can we, what, what new hobbies have you been up to? Oh, so yeah, I don't remember if the last time I was in this or this was 
the deal, but um, but I am I am a, a vanilla farmer of sorts, and um, that that continues to evolve. I don't know if we talked about it before, like I say, but we did. Um, it's a beautiful thing, man. It, I've learned a lot because right, you're probably right now like what is, what is vanilla like? Is that a, <laughs> I, I, I've seen it on like my cereal boxes and on like I know what vanilla extract is, and I it's know like, that it's very expensive. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And like vanilla bean, it's a bean, and like it's not a bean. It refers to more of like a green bean as the shape of the pod thing that comes out, um, and then that has to get dried and dehydrated. And it turns black and smells amazing and tastes amazing in very low concentration doses. But the whole farming process, it's been a hoot. It's uh, an expensive hoot at that. Um, it's just, I mean, I have workers and I got to keep them paid and everybody happy and then things go wrong. And, you know, uh, some sort of, I don't know, machinery or tools are on the fritz and they have to be replaced or fixed or whatever. But it's, it's forced me to become more of a, a leader. Um, I realized through this that I always have been the type to kind of, I mean, I've always been in leadership positions, but I've never considered myself a leader. I'm just like, hey, I'm going to do my thing. And hopefully you guys will want to follow that if you like it. If not, whatever, we'll just do different things. Um, that's been my style of leadership. But when this, it's like, um, oh my God, something's wrong with the vanilla. What are we going to do? Or this is, these plants are dying or, you know, oh God, the, the generator is broke, you know. And I just, it's like um, the skipper always knows what to do, even if he doesn't know what to do. And like, <laughs> I'm at the helm here and I got to make it happen. And so like, I had to assume that role and it was very, um, yeah, it was, there was a lot of growth in that. It was great. So um, I think I'm more of a leader now through my farming endeavors, escapades, if you will. And, uh, and it's going well. They, the, the plants haven't died. They're still, still trucking along. And in about a year and a half, hopefully I'll be having my first harvest. Um, and I've got, I just put up like 400 fruit trees. I got it, this huge vegetable garden thing. I got like four, let's see, 40 Brazilian coconut trees, supposed to be the best coconuts in the world. And uh, so we'll see where it goes, but it's fun. It's like, honestly, what it's about is me with a machete in my hand and my dog goes with me and we just go wild out in the, in the wilderness. And I chop down little trees that need to be <laughs> thinned out with my machete and I feel more manly or I don't know. It's like a great exercise. <laughs> I get aggression out. Like it's, it's my therapy every Saturday. <laughs> and before too long, you're going to be hacking through the jungle and you're probably going to come upon a pyramid. Well, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping ruins. So. that will that'll give us something nice to talk about in the next podcast for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing this commercially then this is a commercial operation. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, not, you know, I mean, it's like um, my stance on that is, as I always say, um, you know, most people doing vanilla, it's their, it's their a game. It's their, it's their deal. And if it doesn't work out, then they are financially screwed. And so my stance is more like, I want to live this experience. I want to see how this works. I am definitely not opposed to money it could potentially make for me. For example, a kilo of dried vanilla, which is basically what five I have, let's see, 2,200 plants of vanilla. And a few have died probably, so close to that. And a kilo is basically when it's all dried and said and done is basically what five plants um, in a year will produce for you. And a kilo of it um, goes for about uh, 700, 800, 600, 800 bucks. Um, 
you know, on, wow. the, on the market there. And basically that's like export price or even domestically. There's a huge demand for vanilla. It's worth its weight in silver. Um, it's a big deal. And the problem is, is that it's all fake. Everybody's just like synthesizing it and whatever. And it's mm -hmm. garbage and people love vanilla. Like, and vanilla has many medicinal properties. It actually shares some of the same components of human breast milk. And so babies, newborns with, with, with apnea that can die from stopping breathing, um, smelling vanilla will cure that or can, and you know, there's evidence to support that. Mm. And so it's like, and it helps, it's a strong anxiolytic. It's like a, uh, low dose, uh, benzodiazepine, if you will. And so it facilitates a natural birth as well because it relaxes the woman, you know, it's, um, it has a lot of, it's got like wound healing properties, immune system strengthening. It's helps with menstrual issues. So it's a very valuable thing. And the Mayans used to farm it 500 years ago and nobody's really done it since they've forgotten about it. So here comes the gringo to a foreign <laughs> land to tell them, Hey guys, you need to like retake up your heritage here. You know, this is some cool stuff. And everybody's like, yeah. I mean, it's like everybody loves vanilla. Everybody just, it's, there's something really cool about it. And everybody wants, if they don't know much, they want to know more. I certainly love the flavor. I love the smell of it. Tell me about it. You know, so I got that going for me. We'll see. That's neat. That's neat. That's exciting. So there aren't really many vanilla, I guess, plantations there in the Yucatan? No, um, I am one of the only ones, but I think there are going to be more coming because Veracruz, Mexico, historically is the is the place is is, is where it's at. However, Veracruz is one of the states that have been most plagued with um, with drug trafficking problems, you know, violence, mm -hmm. mafias, all that stuff, and um, and so it's not very safe to do it anymore. Could you imagine, like all the money you put in for your whole year oh, growing yeah. this stuff and, and the processing of it, and then it goes off in a truck, and that truck gets you know held oh, up, yeah. and all your stuff gets stolen, and like you oh. lose a whole, nobody's going to want to, nobody's going to recover from that. Nobody's going to want to go through it again. Yeah. And so um, a lot of people have stopped. Now Madagascar today is it, this is from. Mexico, it's from some of Central America and a little bit of Northern South America, but basically Mexico is where vanilla comes from, the best vanilla in the world. Is and today, right? Yes. And today, 1% of the world's production of vanilla comes from Mexico and 80% comes from Madagascar. And that is a shame to me because it's not as high a quality, it's not as good, and it's generated violence and things there as well. I don't know if it has, but certainly if there is violence, um, you know, vanilla can be a good target because it's a, you know, high priced commodity. Yeah. Well, let me know if you need investors, you know, I've got all my residency money. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're, I know you're rolling in the big bucks, man. Um, well, That's yeah. Cool. You know, I'm thinking like, I'm thinking like microbreweries. who doesn't need vanilla. I mean, come on. Oh man. Sounds... properties. Who doesn't have some little insomnia, little anxiety on board who couldn't sleep a little better before, you know, a board's exam. This is powerful stuff. That sounds like you're on a gold mine there. That's that's exciting. We'll see. Time will tell. <laughs> you know, I've, I've noticed interviewing different osteopathic physicians, they tend to be attracted to these plants or like bees, bees and plants. I, what is yeah. it about that? Yeah, bees. Um, I'm. That's the next step, actually, is uh, getting the melipona bees down here, which are like the sacred Mayan bee that have the super medicinal honey. That's coming along too. I'm falling right into the osteopathic trends there. Good to it's know. like it's like this natural, like 
like natural healing, like how the earth can heal us, you know, it, it, it's. Well, it doesn't surprise me that much, Ben. I mean, think yeah. about it. Osteopaths are the ones who, you know, remember that osteopathy is, um, is a philosophy that tries to understand life in general and what this mm -hmm. is all about. And boy, that's, that's a big question. An important question for me is like, what the heck am I doing here? What's this all about? Absolutely. And, and, if it's, and it can't stop just with me. Like I'm, I, I recognize that I'm part of something. Um, and, and so if maybe if I can understand or get some good examples from the rest of nature, how that works, maybe it'll help me understand how I work and human bodies work in general, you know, and AT still talked a lot about that. So it doesn't surprise me that much. Yeah. No, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me either. Um, it inspires me, actually. Yeah. Well, good. What about, Dr. Gordon, a book recommendation? Oh, so I'm in I'm finishing up my uh, right now, my master's in humanistic psychology or humanistic psychotherapy, actually, because so I'll be a a therapist as opposed to just a psychologist. We use them kind of synonymously in the U.S., but psychologists know about psych and therapists, you know, psychotherapists actually give therapy and help people out. And I'm a doer, man. I'm an osteopath, so I got to weave that into what I'm already doing. And anyways, in that, um, I recently, I just had, um, uh, let's see, um, what was it? Single therapy. Well, that would be a yeah, sexual psychotherapy um, one. And I'm making up a different one. So this weekend I have the second one. They're like back to back. And it, it basically, we had to read a book. We were, I, usually I'm forced to read a book. You know, I, I like to read, but on my own conditions and whatever. And since med school started, that hasn't happened. And, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I decided I would read a smaller book that I had in the house, obviously. And then I had to do like a big report on it and analysis. And I picked one called The Art of Loving. Um, I didn't have any, you know, um, sexual therapy kind of books on hand. So I, I picked one as close as I could get. And it's called The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And this guy is super highly respected in the whole, um, in the whole psych game, I guess. Uh, he was around... Um, Let's see, German guy who's around in the, you know, all of these guys were around in the 30s and 40s when, you know, the Nazi takeover was coming and World War II was coming. And all of these brilliant people were all about ending social repression and giving liberties to people just as this is coming about. It was like right idea, wrong time. And so they all had to flee. And he was another one of those. And so he later came to the to the U.S. and kind of bounced around. Um, but anyways, it was a, it's a beautiful book because it's like, yeah, you know, love that easy topic. Right. And huh. and he talks about the different forms of, you know, um, loving yourself, maybe a love for God, a love for, you know, a, a mother child um, version of love, you know, certainly a partner, you know, love for your partner. And, and so all these different, and they're all the same, but they're all different. And, and he really enunciates like some interesting differences and similarities between them. And I was like, wow, I never would have thought of that. That makes sense. And, and it's tough, like being married, being in a, any long-term relationship is difficult because once, you know, and this is something I learned the first six months you know, from when you meet somebody, you're falling in love. There is literally this hormonal cascade that induces some sort of 
craziness in you. It's like a psychotic break of sorts where you're just like, woo, I don't care. I'm just, yeah, I'm in love. And, and like, <laughs> and that's great. It's an awesome feeling. And I think it's necessary so that there's this deep commitment and there's this, um, this great memory and nostalgia as to how things started. And you've always got that. It's like this pure, it's like an, it's an addiction, really. There's dopamine that's highly involved. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's an addiction of sorts. And I think that's necessary. Similarly, it happens when it's more with oxytocin. Um, when a baby is born, you know, that's, that's that bond between mother and baby is they're both full of this oxytocin, which is like the empathy hormone. And, and they basically just have this incredibly deep uh, sense of love for one another. And, and that's important as well. Um, so anyways, you know, it's like, once that six month period gets over, then things get real and people get divorced or they start going to therapy or they, you know, or they do really well maybe. But the deal is, is you have to, what he says is basically you have to understand yourself. Um, and, and it's like the idea, it's, it's not the merging of two people, but it is sort of two people in a sense becoming one, but yet maintaining their own boundaries and their own uh, unique features. So it's like, I should not have to compromise and kowtow to my wife and she shouldn't have to for me, but yet there's an understanding. And if I feel secure about myself and if I love myself, then I'm able to say, you know what? I really don't want to watch that dumb movie that you're asking, but I, I know it's important to you. And so let's watch it, you know, but I don't feel bad about it. There's no resentment there. I want to do that truly for, for that person, you know? Um, so it's something like that. And I was like, that clarifies a few things. I wish I had read this book a few years earlier. I could have avoided a few <laughs> marital spats, you know, <laughs> but well, yeah, I appreciate that. Like, yeah. I'm going to read that because, uh, <clears throat> please do. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to take that advice. 130 pages, pretty quick read. Not too bad. You can, you know, bang it out in a weekend and, uh, and it's worthwhile. Like it'll, you know, jot a couple things down. It's, it's got some worthwhile stuff in there. Yeah, that's great. What about a movie or, or documentary recommendation? Yeah, so um, the, so this one was just, I don't even know if this is appropriate, but I recently watched movies lately. And so when you, uh, when I, you know, hear the question, I'm like, okay, um, I saw a really funny one that stuck with me. And so that was the one that popped out and it's called <laughs> Have a Good Trip, Adventures in Psychedelics. It's a, a Netflix movie and it's basically a bunch of uh it's got sting on there it's got sarah silverman adam scott like some famous actors and and um and celebrities and it's them all being interviewed of their experiences with with basically psychedelic drugs and and many of which were very irresponsible stories and it's like what are you oh my gosh you know and but they give you a lot of like i guess since these are topics that are coming up today especially in the psych world and, and I think that the evidence behind them is incredibly encouraging. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on all that stuff, but it's like, wow, that's interesting. I never would have thought. But I think certainly people need to be aware that, you know, everything is a balance and there's there are pros and cons to everything and not everything is for everyone. And in this movie, in a hilarious fashion, with all of their anecdotes and things that they're telling you, they're, they're, the whole point is to give these pointers of like, yeah, don't do this. Don't do that like I did. And you're like... And you have the story. So it's kind of like, you know, they do a, such a good job of it. I thought that it's kind of like maybe people can understand these without having to learn it the hard way first, you know. So 
yeah. um, if people so choose to go that way. But yeah, so it was, it's a hilarious documentary. And uh, so. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I heard about Aaron, Aaron Rodgers, and he was open about this. He was losing a little bit of enthusiasm for, you know, playing in the NFL. He went down to Peru and went on a peyote. I think it was peyote retreat. Okay. And says that it completely changed, not completely, but it definitely changed his, how he looked at his work and his job as an NFL quarterback. And it kind of reinvigorated him because it like created this mind shift. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. When you watch these people's, you know, responses and these kind of testimonies, you're like, I don't even know what they're talking about but there's something very convincing there's a lot of conviction in their words like they're they're for real they are not you know yeah. BSing me right now and uh and so yeah that's hey who knows yeah i mean there's a lot of research being done right now totally. on psychedelics so it'll be interesting to see where that where that leads definitely well dr gordon Let's uh, let's hear about this bioenergetic psychoanalysis. <laughs> you know that that you do. I'm 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 really interested. Like how how did you become interested in this this mind body work? It sounds like. Yeah. So um, I'll tell you what. This is something that really comes from a place of. I think this is this is me as an osteopath, and I think uh, many. I think. Um, many osteopaths feel this way. It's like they say the osteopathic question is why. And I, you know, I've, I've been asked for like, you know, what is a word that best describes you and all this stuff. And I've heard that question a few times and I figured it out. It's curious. I, uh, actually, I think Einstein said that, God, that's gotta be good. Then he said, I have, <laughs> I, I proclaim no specific talents. I'm only wildly curious. And that's what it is. If you don't care about knowing something, you're never going to know it and you won't care anyways. Who cares? No harm, no foul. But I just got to know. And, and I might never know. And I'm okay with that too, but I'm going to enjoy the ride, you know? And um, I just got to know where stuff's really coming from. And I am to an obsessive level, man. I am always, um, I, I am very slow in many things. I'm, I can be very ADD. I can be, you know, I, I could go on hours talking about all my deficiencies, but my strong suit is that like is pattern recognition i think so I, I find a patient i see something that sparks my attention oh that's interesting what the heck happened okay and then and, and then i kind of try and remember the things they had going on and then i find somebody else eventually but now it's on my radar so i'm not just haphazardly finding it now i'm looking for it and oh there's another one and of course i think the universe is just throws me like eight of them in a week you know just so that i can learn my lesson and i'm like oh my gosh this one's got it too oh what do they have in common doo, 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 doo. and i start doing this whole like mental mapping thing out and uh, beautiful mind style and it's just like <laughs> and then i see another and another and, and then i start making these theories and then prove or disprove and then no it's not that yes it is that except not totally modify that part of the important detail comes and it just all makes sense. And so I just, this is kind of how I live my clinical experiences. I just obsess over people. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a people person. I just want to know more than how this all works, specifically people. And, and I don't care how quote unquote crazy they are, how, how messed up their body is. I want to know their life story. And what I've found is um, everybody has an amazing story to tell. 
everyone on this earth, I don't care what you've lived, not lived, whatever, like every, and even if it's not you directly, your family makeup and how things came together and you and your dynamics with the rest of the, this is all fascinating. And everybody's just different. Like it never gets old because it's always like a new movie I'm watching. And, uh, and so I never get bored with my work. I love it. I never know what's going to walk into my office and, and, and like, I'm never going to get burnt out. And I think that's the problem that we never look at and examine as far as where physician burnout comes out. We're just not having fun, man. We're not fixing anybody. <laughs> We're not having fun. We're signing prior auths. Oh God, yeah. I get this insurance company off my back. Oh God, the hospital's coming down to me. I got to see more patients. Got to get more RVUs. And, and it's, it just becomes a business. It just becomes a thing we have to do. I mean, we're already insanely in debt. If we would have known that we weren't even going to have fun or be like actually helping people in tangible ways, literally in the osteopaths case, you know, like, would we have done it? I, I wouldn't have. And so thankfully, and, and very thankfully to Michigan State, I can be in a position here where I can focus on teaching and, and, and seeing patients, but where I don't have to charge them. And, you know, like I, I have the dream job and I take it very seriously and I am squeezing every bit of information and knowledge and wisdom out of it that I can. And um, that's where this comes from is like, I got to know where things really come from. And I have found for better or for worse, because honestly, and I'm going to say this at Convo too, look, I'm not the guy who, well, you know, he's into psych. He's one of those people. No, dude, I am just a guy who wants to know how things work. And my clinical experiences and research have 100% led me to not only believe, but understand that the very base of all human, the basis and, and uh, the base of all of physically of our um, anatomic and physiologic, let's say physical issues come from the mind. That's where they start. They have to. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, I don't know if right now, but if that's the, <laughs> the moment, but basically, um, well, yeah, I don't know if anything is that, are we good up to now? Um, I, maybe you're going to get into this, Dr. Gordon, but you talked about your, your strong suit is pattern recognition. When you say pattern recognition, are you talking about biomechanical pattern recognition in the body, fascial strain recognition? What are you talking about there? Yeah, all of the above and how it's all one thing, but, but sometimes in a piecemeal fashion, like you say, so I might notice, you know, uh, I, it could be like a medical diagnosis, uh, you know, a pathophys. Okay, this person's got, you know, bile acid diarrhea. This person's got COPD. This person's got, you know, this person's got this, got that. Where's that? And I'm never okay with just writing down a diagnosis. I got to know where. Like, I want to write the prequel to Harrison's because Harrison starts with, yup, things start going wrong. And I'm like, whoa, hold on, hold on. <laughs> we got off on the wrong foot here. Why did they go wrong? Like, that doesn't just happen. What went wrong in the body? And nobody wants to except osteopaths, nobody really wants to um, admit or, or try and understand where, you know, that things, it's all self-inflicted. It all comes from the body. If the body is well and nothing has happened to it or things have happened and they've been fixed, then nothing, you know, there will be no pathology. Things don't come from nowhere. Everything has, everything's cause and effect. Everything is transactional. Everything has, you know, a consequence. And if there's no if, if nothing has happened, if there's no cause, then there's no effect. But here we are just looking at the effects and we don't care about the cause. And so I want to know what the cause is. Yeah. With, with the pattern recognition, I also wanted to ask you, 
do you think that, and I find this in myself, if I'm doing a sacral diagnosis and I find a, a right on left, I find five or six right on lefts that day. Yeah. You know, or if I find an inferior right pubic rami or ramus mm-hmm. uh, on the right, I find like 10 in the de- in the same day. It almost seems like things that I, it's almost like you're pre-programmed to find things that you've already found before. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, I think it could, it could be a couple different things um, that could be happening or maybe they're happening at the same time. Uh, Cause that happens to me too. And like I say, you know, first of all, they say, if you find somebody with the same diagnosis, you know, or, or a bunch of people in a row or in a, over a few days with the same stuff, then maybe you've got that issue going on. And that's like a transference kind of thing. Hmm. That could be another thing could be, um, Maybe just sort of you you recognizing one now you're recognizing it more you know um, more widely it was always there but you weren't really seeing it or maybe you're kind of biasly making yourself see it certainly that could be at hand as well um, and, and and I don't know what it is and and I don't need to that's a why that I don't really need I just stay with the facts I see it as this okay and I do question myself all right is this really a right on left hold on here let me I'm just gonna do to do and then no it is okay cool. And, and I confirm and whatever, and I go on. Now, here's what I would say as far as a pattern recognition. What other things did that person have going on? Those right on lefts, did they have anything in common? Did they come in for, was it low back pain? Was it headaches? Was it, did they have a left knee issue? Um, you know, what things did they have in common? When you look at that, I'm a very visual guy too. The first thing I do is I stand the person up and I look at them. I just saw a woman two days ago and she was very interesting. She just, it was like, oof, she just, kind of caught my attention right away, had a lot of things that like this woman's pretty charged up with a lot of emotion. And, but she was, she was really cool, really nice. And I stood her up and I go, okay. So after about a minute or so, just kind of analyzing, looking at her, I'm like, all right, so you come from a family. It was a really hardcore upbringing. It sounds like, and a lot of dominance, a lot, a lot of domination from mom and dad. And I'm thinking mom, mom's side she comes from the money is that right and she was the you know and she's just like her jaw is dropping and she's like oh my god and I'm like yeah and you felt and you had to kind of so that's why you have your jaw like this and that's why this is like that and blah 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 and 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 she was just like and then I was like uh you got chronic and I go how long have you been how many bite guards have you bit through basically have you broken from the um you know bruxism the teeth clenching that you have and she's like, well, I haven't broken it yet, but I definitely have one. And I've had one for a long time, but I don't like to use it. And I'm like, yeah. And I go, and you've got chronic constipation. She's like, yep. And that's simply, and she was just like laughing by the end of it. Like, how are you doing this? And it's just like, it's not that I'm, you know, like clairvoyant and whatever and telepathic. It's that when you've seen enough of the people with the same patterns, you can make really good guesses. You know, it's like card counting in Vegas is knowing what you've seen, what's, you know, and so you know what's probably going to happen. You don't have to be at 100%, but if you can be 90% in the ballpark, then you've made a pretty darn good guess. And so that's the pattern recognition. What are these things? And then after you've seen it enough, you just pick it up unconsciously. And in a second, that thin slice, um, in like in the book Blink, I think we talked about that last one. In a second, it just, all the information comes to you. And it's almost overwhelming because it's so much at once. But you have to, I mean, I've been doing this for a couple of years now, 
and it's like it's you slowly you got to crawl before you walk but you can really make so much sense out of just the way someone looks if you really analyze their body and it's funny because we talk about structure and function right that is the third osteopathic tenet structure and function are reciprocally interrelated i can still hear Dr. Dr. Jake Rowan there, (laughs) drilling it into our heads as students. I love the guy. I'm glad he did that. And, and, and what happens, you know, we say, yeah, because the knee, and I would say, you know, the knee is shaped perfectly to execute a function. And that very function also helps maintain the structure of that knee. But why are we always talking about parts of the body? I thought the first tenet was that the body is one. Why don't we ever talk about the structure and function of the oneness of the body? And that's what I'm getting at is Every body as a whole on the macro level also has a structure specifically that helps it carry out a function, which is fundamental to its survival, to its ability to thrive, um, chock full of defense mechanisms as it may be, as we all are, that's its best shot at survival that it has. Like once again, the body is perfect, is all knowing, all understanding. And I always say to people, and I think they like to hear it. And it's, I, it's totally true. Um, your body is smarter than me. The best I can hope to do is to understand your body, what it needs, what happened and how can I fix it? I'm not trying to tell it what to do. It knows, you know, and there's a, it's a, it's a intention kind of thing. It's a subtle difference, but it's, it's a huge difference. I like that. Your body is smarter than me. It is. Tell people that they're like, yeah, Thank you. I, <laughs> yeah, I do have a smart body. you know. <laughs> so then would you say as a physician, you're trying to understand what the body needs and just try to help it along? Yes. So here's the deal. Um, this was another like this psych is totally they're talking psych to me and I'm here in osteopathy the whole way. And there was this breakthrough where I said, oh, my God, I finally understand more of the things still was saying and, and what I think osteopathy is about. So we're always looking for where things came from, right? We are root cause seekers. And I love that. Don't get me wrong. However, in this, whenever I want like, I want to know where it, you know, this person's psych pathology comes from, where their anxiety comes from, where their, you know, mechanisms, all these things. I want to know where that comes from. And they're like, no, in the humanistic psychology, we don't care about where it came from. We want to know how it's helping them. That's what we want to ask them. I'm like, but who cares? It's wrong. It's not ideal. You know, this is whatever. And so it took me a little while to be able to drink the Kool-Aid. Um, but finally I did. And I, I started to believe in it. And I said, okay, I get it because want to stay in the here and now, want to be present. And that's the only way that we can, you know, the gestalt therapy and all these things, that's the way it works. So when you're in the gestalt therapy, it's all about the here and now. So you're like, you're like, well, I'm I'm an alcoholic. I drink too much, you know, and I don't want to do that anymore. And you can't just change if you don't accept it first. That's, that's the big thing. And so you say, but how is this working for you? Yes. Well, it's not obviously. And I'm like, no, 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 it, it is like, understand your body is smart and it knows what it's doing. It's not ideal, but if you have to drink that much alcohol, it tells me that you are dealing with some very intense stuff that if you did not drink, you might be even worse off without numbing that pain. You might be even worse off. And this is the kind of stuff going back to this incident at MSU, you know, for someone to go to that level, there were some serious things going on. 
you know, and, and these are the things that I would like to know about. And so when someone is shooting up heroin, we always take the moral high ground. Oh, God, these people just want to want to ruin their lives and be living in the streets and be shooting up and getting MRSA and, you know, hep C infections. God, they just they they that they, they want to do that. It's like, really, you think people want to live like that? Or do you think they've had some really harsh circumstances now not to victimize them, not to justify it and say that it's OK or that it's good? But I bet they got some really compelling reasons for injecting those drugs. And if we are ever privileged enough to actually uh, be privy to what those experiences were, my experience has been I immediately feel admiration for the person and I feel guilt for having judged them. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, your father did that to you. And that happened for how long? Oh my gosh, you're doing better than me. I would, I would be dead. I don't think I'd be alive. Um, you know, like, and it's this, this profound respect and admiration I have for them. And so, so the, the deal is not where did things come from, but how is this helping you? And that will lead you wherever you need to go. And just like the mind works, the body also works. It has to be the same if this mind body thing actually works. And so, um, that means if somebody has uh, what do we call it? Psoas syndrome, right? Oh, I got psoas syndrome. Yeah, I've seen it a hundred times. Okay, but did you ever ask yourself why? Remember that this is all mediated through the nervous system. This isn't the body just being under attack constantly and dealing with stuff, although that's one way to look at it, but rather the perfect, constant adaptation, modulation, regulation, according to all the horrible things that have happened to us in our lives so that we don't feel pain physically and so that we don't feel pain emotionally. And these happen through the exact same process, actually, mediated by the nervous system in the middle. That's how the whole thing works. You have a nervous system in the middle that is running both sides. Just like a somatovisceral reflex, we should have a somato-emotional reflex, you know, recognized as well. So, whoa, Dr. Gordon, I'm trying to, I'm trying to- That was a lot. That was a all this. <laughs> Think about it. Here we go. Here we go. Remember how Still said, treat the health, right? Yes. Treat the health and the objective of the physician should be to find health. Anyone can find pathology. I love that. It's, it's so arrogant. He just throws it right in their face. Any one of you dummies can find pathology. I don't care. I'm looking for the health. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And I'm proud of it, but I don't understand it. But through the psych, I did. Why? Because I realized suddenly in an instant, I said, oh my gosh, if I got the wind knocked out of me once and my diaphragm tightened up. It is doing that, not because it has to, although maybe that's one way of looking at it, but because it needs to. It is doing that because if I were to get hit in that same spot again, that might be the end of me. If something horrible happens, if I get, you know, even a C-section is a horrible surgery that we minimize because you know, the patient is awake when we do it and it's very common. But Actually, it goes through seven layers of fascia and muscle and all sorts of stuff all the way through the uterus and a baby comes out. And so there's a lot tied up in this thing. And if that were to now, what is the the body doesn't care if this was the most skilled surgeon in the world or a tiger ripping you apart. So what it's going to do to prevent desanguination is we are going to put a lot of tension there mediated through the nervous system, through the fascia, the muscles. That whole thing is just ripe with with somatic dysfunction we call it but is it dysfunction it's preserving life it's it's saving us it's keeping us from bleeding out it's also 
bending, it's holding and folding counter strain style, our body over that position. If I get a C-section there, well, I'm not going to have one, hopefully, but if, if someone were to get a C-section in the front, they're going to naturally have a little bit more of like a, a um, flexed, if you will, like a hip flexed kind of position. They are protecting themselves from that being hurt again. And that is the health of the body. That is the all-knowing. Every single thing that happens, it puts tension on to protect itself. And so when we see dysfunction, where, where, where we see dysfunction, I see the body at work and the body keeping us alive. Because if it didn't do that, it would probably happen again and again. And then we'd really be screwed. But the body is always adapting. It's all-knowing. It's not ideal. But just like our defense mechanisms are not ideal, but because they could involve alcoholism or drug abuse or lying or what have you, they're better than the alternative, given this person's context. But we don't understand their context. That's the difference. So I, I understand what you're saying. And I like how you're looking at the person from this lens of health. Sure. The, it's, it's, not, it's not the somatic dysfunction. It's your body's reaction to whatever that may be that is causing this strain pattern that you're finding. Trying to optimize movement or protect itself in some way. Right. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. If I got injured and my body did not respond to it, um, then it could easily happen again. And, and if it happens again, then I might die from it. You know, that's like that, that double hit, you know, it's, um, it's not, it's, it's definitely not ideal. And so what happens to minimize the chance of that happening again, tension forms in that area mediated by the nervous system through the muscles, the fascia, et cetera, all of that tension forms. And also it's on my brain's awareness now, and it changes the overall shape of my body. And so now next time something's going to happen, that position is automatically and unconsciously protected against mm -hmm. so that it doesn't get hit again. And that's the health of the body. That's the body saying, yeah. okay, well, boom, we've lost. It's like putting a tourniquet on, you know, it's like, okay, we don't want to die. So we're going to put a tourniquet on here before we bleed out. It's not ideal, but it is what it is given the context that we've, that we've lived. Now, how does the mind come into play here other than, your body sending the signal to your central nervous system and your brain sending an efferent signal back to those muscles, fascia tendon to protect itself, kind of lock down, maybe tight. Sure. Think about if, if you get hit and then in a, that was, uh, you get hit in a car, you know, you get in a car wreck. Um, you get hit by, you know, I got hit by a baseball bat in the head when I was like eight and uh, I was gushing blood. I had to get stitches, all that. I tell you what, from now on, every time I'm near, it was funny, my kids, I'm showing them how to play paddle tennis here. And just yesterday, they were like, um, my daughter was swinging, my boy was running by, I'm like, Liam, stay away. You know, like, don't go near her when she's swinging the racket. This, I got hit in the head, you know. Um, anytime I'm around a baseball bat, I'm a little more aware of things. Like, your mind does not forget either. So there is a memory, a cognitive memory. There is an unconscious, so this is, the whole point, okay, this is, this is something to, to write down here. If the human body were nothing more, nothing less than the physical manifestation of the unconscious mind, 
that's what the body is. It is the physical reflection of everything in our unconscious mind. Therefore, it says things and displays things that we don't even understand about ourselves because it's hidden behind that curtain. That whole 85% of our mental capacity, which is unconscious, that's, what's in our, that's what our body is showing. And that's why, as physicians, there's so much value <clears throat> in looking at people's body and just understanding it. Just, just analyze every person visually, every patient that you see, give yourself two minutes, and then you'll start to understand so many other things that you didn't before, and even about their mind. But there's kind of a way to do that. And it has to do specifically with the psychocorporeal or the mind-body medicine. And I see that since the hour is almost up, we won't even have time to get into those specific things like um, Dr. Beard was talking about. Well, I mean, I've got time if you do. Oh, well, I got time. If it's, if it's <laughs> this I stuff, wanna, I got time. I want to hear about this stuff. All right. So, so yeah. that, that, that is absolutely fascinating to me. The human body is the, you're saying your belief as a physician is that the, the body is the physical manifestation of the unconscious mind. Yes. I'm Whoa. not the first to say that either. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm more repeating it, but these people are much smarter than me. So it sounded cool. I do believe it to be true. I see it more and more every day. It's like you hear these osteopathic tenants and you're like, yeah, cool. That's interesting. All right, cool. I'll file that one away. And then, and then years pass by and they mean more to you and they mean different things. And that's what this is for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's true. It literally, the, the body, they call it the armor, our musculoskeletal system in the psych world. And this is some history on it. So, all right, we'll go into the history real quick. <clears throat> Freud, it's got to start with Freud, right? He was the, the big daddy of the whole deal. Yeah. And he was kind of crazy. You know, he's, he's, he was uh, eccentric. And kind of a jerk in a lot of ways, um, but he was a genius and he figured out a lot of things. He talked about fixations, right? Oral fixation, anal fixation, phallic fixation. And what happened later was, um, and we can talk about those in a bigger, more specific kind of context as well. But then later, a guy named Wilhelm Reich, who was one of his, you know, Freud had many disciples. I'm sure everybody wanted to study under him and be his protege and everything. Um, his real true protege was Carl Jung and, uh, that guy was awesome. I could talk a while about him. Um, but Wilhelm Reich was one of his disciples. He was very bright. He was another, um, Jewish German in the thirties, all about ending social repression with, <laughs> he had to get, he had to kind of ski dad a lot of Germany, um, years after he got started because of, you know, political climates. Um, and he said that, so he basically wrote up a thesis. He started discovering, because he was obsessed with the body, like osteopaths are. So he's kind of, he's from our tribe, if you will. And he said, Freud, I've discovered it. Here's my thesis. Look, all of your fixations correspond to structures in the body as well. Specific overall shapes of bodies, body shapes that, 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 you know, that, that coincide. And the, as I got to get more details, but from what I hear, the legend is goes that he basically ripped up his thesis and told him to get the hell out of his office and, and, and kicked him out of the school. You think that stopped Wilhelm Reich though? Thankfully, no. Um, and one of his quotes is that muscular tension is the somatic side of repression. Okay. 
Now, bear with me here. I'm going to put up a, I'm going to read this slide actually. So I don't get it wrong. It's kind of a mouthful. Say that um, one more time. Muscular tension is the somatic side. He even said the word somatic. I was like, oh my gosh. The somatic side of repression. Of repression. Wow. Okay. And so let's see what we got here. Oh, where is that thing? I'm looking for, muscular there's another one here. Think about that though. Repression. Think about it for mm. a second. What does that, what would that mean? Why would you need, I'll ask you, why would you need the body to have tension in order to repress a memory? What do you think? Why would the body need to have tension to repress a memory? I mean, if... I mean, according to what we were talking about earlier, the body is reacting in such a way to promote health, to live in a way that is pain. I don't know if I want to say pain free. Pain tolerable. Sure. Pain tolerable. Yeah. Protective. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't know. Like if we're talking root cause, I'm not sure. I know that that is a, a strong belief, you know, patient gets into a car accident, holds their breath right before impact and their diaphragm remains extremely tense, you know, for maybe years. Right. Um, Which is less than ideal. I'll be the first to say, however, if they didn't tense up and just let themselves go, I mean, we have these reactions, you know, to, um, to, to these incidents, these experiences for a reason, if they didn't do that, it could have been much worse. And if they didn't, and then the beautiful thing is that that tension doesn't stay right there. That's why everything hurts at first. And then over time, it naturally stops hurting. That doesn't mean it got healed because there's a, I don't know who said this first, but there seems to be this very common quote that goes, time doesn't heal, it conceals. And what I would say specifically is that it compensates. So I broke my elbow. It hurts like heck. Um, but over the next few years, it's slowly dispersing throughout the rest of my body. My entire body is shifting to be able to accommodate um, that blow, basically. That force that has been, you know, basically injected into my body, imposed in my body now is going to disperse throughout my entire body. It has to, if we believe in the first tenet that the body is one unit. I mean, this is one cell that multiplied a whole bunch of times to create something like 37 trillion cells, but it's still one thing. And so if something happens in one part, in fact, there are no parts, it happens throughout the entire thing. And, and that's, that's part of the intelligence as well. Now, as far as the, so that's what you know, muscular tension is the somatic side of repression. Later came, so that was Wilhelm Reich. He was basically the founder of the uh, mind-body um, understandings. Um, this guy was kind of crazy. He ended up getting arrested by the FBI three times and eventually died in jail from, quote-unquote, a heart attack three days before his parole, which means he was maybe uh, arguably killed. 
<laughs> nobody really knows. Everybody's kind of curious about that. Um, and so, but he was a very controversial guy. Later comes, that was in like the 30s, 40s, 50s. Laters in the, later in the 60s and 70s, a guy named Alexander Lowen came along and he took uh, Wilhelm Reich's original ideas and he created, he kind of revamped it. So Wilhelm Reich created something called vegetotherapy. And this was based on seven segments and, um, and that the musculoskeletal system is the armor of the human body. Okay. It is our armor, right? Doesn't that make sense? You know, it's, yeah. it's tough. It's strong. We got bones, we got muscle, we got ligaments, we got tendons, we got some hard stuff in there. So it protects us, but you know how else it protects us? And this is what nobody understands. And I just want to get on top of the highest mountain and shout it out is that it also absorbs our emotional strife. Whatever happens to us, and I'm talking mostly in the first seven years of life, but throughout our entire life, whatever happens to us that is overwhelming, that is too much to be able to, to bear, goes into our musculoskeletal system. It's like the landfill for our emotions. Will you see it? I mean, I, I saw the movie, I talk about this even in like a lecture I do with the, um, with the students that come. Um, I saw the movie It, the original one, when I was like six years old. And my God, I mean, probably 20, 25 years, I, maybe 30, I was freaked out by that. And like, it would just always be there in the back of my mind. And it, it actually can live in the extraocular muscles of your eyes. That emotion, that memory is part of a programming that lives in your muscles. I've done 25 sessions of something called vegetotherapy, which if you want to understand osteopathy and how the body really works, I highly recommend you do that. It's called vegetotherapy. It's not a diet. You lie there and you're moving. Um, they have you do these things called actings. And you basically move parts of your body for like three to five minutes, say is something repetitive. It could be like to breathe a certain way. It could be like, you know, look at your nose and then a point on the, on the ceiling and then at your nose and then the ceiling. And you do that for like three, four or five minutes. And all of a sudden you might start cracking up laughing. You might start crying. You might start just like your body starts tensing up. Anything could happen um, or nothing could happen. And then you go on to the next. But as soon as one hits, because it's kind of like fishing, um, you, you will start to feel your body tense up and, oh my God, what is that? And you start getting all red and then you, you feel the emotion. It could be rage. It could be sadness. It could be fear. Um, and then, and then the memory and you're just, and you might, I mean, I cried my eyes out in my, um, therapist arms like 15 times as if she were my mom. I'm talking snot hanging, like just everything. And, uh, crazy stuff. I never would have thought, for example, that lying there on my back, lying supine and lifting my head up to look down at my feet and saying dad like five or six times would detonate, you know, would trigger the memory of um, when I saw him one hour post-op from uh, open heart surgery at a four-way cabbage. Um, and I thought he was dead. I was like, he was ashen looking. He was horrible. I don't, you know, like, and we had been through so much already in this whole process of the week. And then to see that, it was just like, I ran out of the room screaming and crying. I was like 13. My mom fainted right there. All of that came out just by bending my neck forward and saying his name like five or six times. Um, 
<laughs> 25 years. I could go on for hours talking about my vegetal therapy experience. I should probably write a book about it. It was I mean, insane. did you did you feel different in your body after you had that emotional release? Oh, I sat up, cock, cock, cock. my back started cracking. Everything was like when I, you know, like, oh yeah, and it takes you a week to recover from it. Because the deep again, it's one thing to fix an FRS or a, a you know a posterior torsion or something of a sacrum. It's another to re to surgically remove a painful memory, a trauma that that was one hundred percent emotional in uh, or at least non-physical but it became physical because it was so overwhelming for you that your musculoskeletal system had to take it on so the point here is that and that question i asked you why would the why would we need muscular tension because the emotional trauma lives in our muscles and in our fascia now the second guy that i talked to you about his name is alexander lowen Right. And he said it much more fully and much better. I'm going to read it kind of slowly, this little quote that he has, because this explains it all. This is gold right here. Okay. He says, while the repression of a memory is a psychological process, the suppression of feeling it accomplished by deadening a part of the body or reducing its motility so that feeling is diminished. Okay. The suppression of feeling is accomplished by dead, isn't that an interesting word, deadening a part of the body or reducing motility so that you don't feel it. So imagine if you had, and that's just one part of it, but real quick, imagine you had an experience where, you know, you, you, your heart got broken, right? And it was just, oh, it was too much. And God, where's that going to go? Probably in like your sternum around there, you know, but it could go anywhere depending. But usually there's sort of a rhyme and a reason to, to where these things go. Um, but, but I don't always know how or why. So if it goes there and I don't want to, then that part of the body, I'm not going to want to feel its movement. It turns out if it's moving freely, then I'm going to be reminded by remember because proprioception and all these nerves that we have, these different phenomena that tell us where our body's at and what's going on. Anything that is connected to that, like a painful memory, because that's where I felt that pain at. Or, or, oh my God, you get really bad news and, and some people throw up or they see something horrific and they throw up. That is maintained in there. And so if your stomach is not tight and it's actively moving and it has that there, you're going to be constantly reminded potentially of that painful memory and you're not going to be able to get through life. So what does it do? It locks it down but with muscular tension mediated through the nervous system and certainly through the fascia in between. Okay, so it says, the feeling is diminished. The repression of the memory is dependent upon and related to the suppression of feeling. Again, if I'm feeling it in my body where it happened originally, I'm going to be remembering it, and that's not good. Um, for as long as the feeling persists, which is in the body, the memory remains vivid. Suppression entails the development of chronic muscular tension so to really suppress something, we have chronic muscular tension in those areas of the body where the feeling would be experienced. In the case of sexual feeling, this tension is found in and about the abdomen and pelvis, which kind of makes sense. So that's the whole deal. Something happens. We can block it out in the mind because it's in our unconscious. People, I, I, in the last month or two, I've met a lot of patients who have repressed memories of sexual abuse when they were children. 
And they said, and then once my, you know, my father or my older brother or whoever it was that it happened with died, all of a sudden I started having these, you know, these crazy dreams and these flashbacks and these like unsettling uh, thoughts and, and memories. It was like, and I said, wow, that makes sense. Maybe since the person is gone, they're no longer a threat. And so now the body, the unconscious mind is allowing that to come forth. Um, so I yeah. wanted to ask you, Dr. Gordon. So I've seen it go the other way instead of doing the, the, the mind therapy, or you called that vegetal therapy. Is that right? Vegeto. Yeah. Vegetal vegeto therapy. therapy. Yeah. Yep. So instead of going from the mind to the body, I've heard of different osteopathic physicians when they're treating, for example, like the diaphragm, patients will start weeping uncontrollably. Yes, totally. So have you seen that as well, where you, you release the tension in that area that's, let's say, holding that memory or that emotion in it, you release the tension there and this emotion becomes released as you know, uncontrollable crying. Yes. <clears throat> In fact, um, I, that's, that's, I mean, and Mark Beard might've, you know, mentioned like, that's one of my mainstays of treatment. Like I'm, my hand becomes kind of like a knife or like a hot poker. And it's like up in that, you know, fascial reflection of the diaphragm right under it. And I'm, where does that need to go? Okay. Boom. You know, the diaphragm is very key to all of this. And in fact, vegetotherapy and what Lowen contributed was bioenergetics is all about um, the breathing patterns. If someone is not breathing deeply, then they're not living very deeply. You know, they're just not, they're, they're very restricted in respiratory drive and capacity. Um, you know, think of lymphatic drainage, venous return, all of that is dependent on the in and out of air. Um, and if you're not getting a very good exchange, then you're going to start running into problems. So that diaphragm is key. And I find that all the time, I call that la llorona. It's just like the, the cry baby or the, the crier <laughs> because they all cry with it. They, it's it, eventually some, you know, that's where all the emotions seem to be stored, uh, large, you know, largely in the diaphragm. Now, would you also say that there are some, what we call somatic dysfunctions in the body, which do not correlate to any kind of traumatic experience? That's a good question. I, I've asked myself the same and the best answer, this is, these are my thoughts. Um, I think everything, as long as it is part of our nervous system, one way or another, it is connected either directly or indirectly to these, but I think some are just little, little, um, isolated puzzle pieces that not a big deal and others are like hugely important, you know, um, sort of cornerstone, if you will, in, in the whole, you know, the whole body's uh, greater context. And so, yeah, if I fix an, FR, uh, an FRS at T4, um, they're not necessarily going to start crying and all that. And very rarely would something like that happen. However, if I were to stay on that tissue and see what it's connected to and follow that to its spot and then, oh, that's the sacrum. And then now it's the knee and oh, now it's back up through the adductors to the pubic bone and I'm on that pubic bone and there's something on the SI joint. And now all of a sudden there's this huge release and now they cry or something that, well, that wouldn't surprise me. 
it's it's all connected but most of the pieces that we're taking care of um are just i don't want to say frivolous but they're just not as fundamental to these um because for someone to have an emotional release you are really getting at something very deep and important to them and the body doesn't usually allow that to be revealed so easily usually these happen after you've already had a few treatments or somebody can come in right off the bat on their first one. Um, but usually you kind of got to get through a couple of layers first to really get into an old surgery or some child abuse or having the wind knocked out of them, you know, and a lot of people really try and hold it in. And, and that's when I just kind of talk to them because you can see there's like a change in their face. Their eyes might get glassy a little bit. Um, th- you know, they just, something changes in their face and I kind of give them some reassuring words and I like that part of the whole deal. It's like, it's like, it's all good, man. You can, you're, you're safer. You can, you can let it out, you know, just however they need to be talked to. And then they just kind of let it go. You know? mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. Like it's, I love doing that. Yeah. I mean, would you go so far as to say that if you don't get that emotional release, then you haven't found, I guess what Dr. Styles would say, like the key lesion area. You know, I've thought about that one. You got some good questions. I've thought about that as well. I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think that's the case, but I think if ever you get one, hundred percent, you're doing something right. You are, you are onto something very important. And I hope that you have the skills to comfort that person, to be there for them, to help them get that out completely, you know, and then leave them in a balanced state before they leave your office. You know, it's, it's a big responsibility you're taking on to be there for a person in something like this. I get a huge charge out of it. It makes me feel very useful. Like I'm actually helping. Um, I find it just intriguing and it's just humbling to be there for them in, in such a important moment of their life. I mean, people come, they come back and they cry tears of joy and they're like, Oh my God, I can hug my daughter now, or I can, you know, whatever. And it's just like, wow. I mean, their life changes. And, uh, it's, it's, it's not a small thing, you know, it's a, it's a really big deal. And there are ways to, to kind of go after this, you know, this emotional stuff. And like I say, um, the emotional damage is the basis for our somatic dysfunction. It all starts with emotions before we're even born. Really? Like in utero? In utero, man. Yep. And that's. That's, that's a whole different level of this, but that's very, again, I got to know where it comes from. So you ever notice, you ever heard of a baby being born and having an umbilical hernia? That happens, right? And they got to be like operated on in the first, you know, four days of life or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, how does that happen? Like, how did they get a hernia in utero? Were they like, you know, bench pressing and lifting heavy boxes and all the stuff that happens with humans or? I'm not sure. Uh, right? Um, Nobody, that's, that's what I'm talking about. We all, and I, I used to, I was like, umbilical hernia, because those things happen. And that's the end of the story. And then I started asking myself, why? I'm like, wait a minute. There's only one thing that I can think of. There's something attached to that um, umbilical cord. I'm sorry, <laughs> give it away. <laughs> to that um, umbilicus, and that is an umbilical cord. And maybe that got pulled on. But wait a minute, what pulled on it? And the only thing I could ever think of, like in my case, um, maybe me projecting, but was, you know, if the cord is wrapped when the baby's born and that's, if it's born, um, you know, vaginally, um, but 
cords can be wrapped also in a C-section delivery. Um, you know, it's probably not the same pull, but for one reason or another, babies get twisted up in their cords, they get pulled on, but that's not the only thing that can happen. It's certainly through the cord, but in general, what happens is, and, and I'm still, this is something where it's very hard to learn about because well, I haven't figured out how to like, you know, see what's going on um, inside a, you know, um, a uterus just yet. I mean, think about it. How, how do you figure that out? How do you figure out what's happening exactly with that cord? Ultrasound isn't quite enough. Um, it's, it's hard to really know, but there are a lot of people who talk about it. And basically, when there is emotional strife, that is all the things that mom already brings to the table, and that is the emotional inheritance, basically. So if that's how, if mom and dad are a certain way with emotions, as well as, oh, baby's got mom's nose and dad's eyes and, you know, or uncle's mouth and chin or whatever, those, I am unaware, and, and I would challenge you to, if you can find any gene responsible for the shape of someone's chin or the shape of their eyes or of their nose or, you know, of their chest, all of this stuff is based on, and we've this. I remember hearing about this first at convocation like 10 years ago. All of this stuff is based on not genes, but the forces imposed on the baby in utero. And what are those forces imposed? Emotions. The emotions are probably felt in general and they are expressed. Again, the baby is already repressing things because it's already difficult for the baby to deal with. And I think that that stuff is also coming in mostly through the cord. And so what if the umbilical cord was like an emotional transducer of sorts? And what happens is that cord starts to twist, starts to stretch in specific directions, and somehow starts to distort all of the aponeurosis of the abdomen, i.e. The, the linea alba, which is, it is a white line, but it doesn't go just from your, you know, pubic symphysis to your xiphoid bone, it is continuous as everything in the body is. And it's not just a line either. And so if you start to pull on some belly buttons and, and counter strain and go the way that they want to go, otherwise it's going to hurt, you will start to find some very interesting things. I have discovered that the cause of appendicitis seems to be from a wicked pull of that umbilical cord, or I guess we'll say umbilicus at this point. Um, to the left, which means if I'm pulling it to the left, it's going to distort the right side of the trunk. And that is going to bind up the tip of the 12th right rib, which we know to be the Chapman's point for the appendix. And then eventually they have lymphatic stagnation. It starts to congest. It starts to expand out. It hurts. And eventually it can even burst. Then we can have sepsis and even die from it. But these are things that the same thing with with cholathiasis. I've met girls that have been 12, 18, 15 years old, skinny as a rail, and have had a cholecystectomy. How is that possible if it's not something structural? And we know that the falciform ligament goes from the belly button to the liver. And so that is part of that same deal as well. So when these things start getting pulled on, by the time a baby is born, I guess my point is that by the time a baby is born, from my experience and my research, what it's all led me to is that we already kind of know what issues the baby is going to have. 
which is all emotional. It hasn't been physically injured in there. It's been emotionally injured. And that emotional injury is also good because whatever ways of thinking mom and dad have and whatever social environmental context there is outside in the real world that the baby doesn't even know about yet, that baby's about to be thrown into that world and it doesn't even know it. And so it needs to be prepared for those things. And so the baby is already being exposed to all this family lineage of emotional baggage and crap, you know, that it's like, this isn't mine. I didn't do anything. But yeah, but you're going to have to deal with it. And so here you go. You're going to be dealing with this mother and with this father for a while here, uh, hopefully, you know. And so these are the things that babies are already in. And Lowen has a very good quote about that as well, that um, we are already programmed with all of our, our emotional needs, basically, through our parents by the time we're born. And that is all manifested physically in our body. That's a lot to take in, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, what you are saying or part of what you're saying is that this baby is, is, um, is dealing with emotional baggage is the right baggage, word, but emotional yeah. strain Strife. from the the muscle tension in the mother due to her like emotional tension and strife that she's dealing with that's influencing the baby so essentially yes um let's say if a mother has a certain tendency um she has had, let's have, say that mother has had um, mm, sexual violence, something of that sort has happened to her. Maybe it's happened to her mother as well. This is, you know, these, these things tend to kind of run in these, in, in clusters like this in families. Um, if this has happened and this is an issue that lives in mom's unconscious mind, conscious mind, and in her body, then the baby will be exposed to that. Now, what exactly the repercussions will be, that's hard to say, but they will be exposed to it and they will be aware of it, um, but they won't know what it is. But oftentimes, I think that that in the family history, if you will, is what leads to fibroids, um, a need for a C-section because, you know, um, mother's not dilating, uh, all these things, um, menorrhagia, metrorrhagia, all these different issues that, are, that, you know, that are reproductive in nature, uh, ovarian cysts. All I know is I happen to see tons of um, sexual violence, sexual abuse issues, both either in the person who, you know, in the very patient who has these issues or in their parents and then they have these issues. And I notice, I say, man, that's, that's interesting. And what I also find is that the belly button is pulled upward, which means that in utero, it was being pulled up, which means it was, dis it was basically ripping everything below. So if the cord is pulling upward towards the head, then the part that's going to rip and be distorted is the part below the umbilicus, inferior to it, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and so that is going to, so wherever that distortion happens, remember that our linea alba is directly connected to all of our organs. There are fibers that penetrate into our organs. So whatever happens 
to your cord in utero is happening to your organs. And we know that there can be enough tension, which is emotional in nature, apparently, because I don't know how it could be that physical, um, that it can actually rip out your belly button and cause you an umbilical hernia. Or it can also cause bilateral inguinal hernias, or it can cause a hiatal hernia, or it can cause a ventral hernia, or rectus diastasis. Why is it that some women, when they're pregnant later on, so this has already happened, maybe they've always had an almost um, ventral hernia, and then they have, they're pregnant, they have their baby, and then they have rectus diastasis. Why do only some women have that? Why do only some women's belly buttons pop out after about six months of being pregnant and others don't? Because they already have weakened fascia there because it was already pulled on before they were born. So these things are happening to us. And I think that that, I guess my assertion would be that that is the mechanism by which emotional transference happens to the baby. But that's some pretty deep stuff. I mean, that's... That is deep. There are people that... I see it. There are people that talk about it, but it's hard to prove. It's really, you yeah. know, I, I just know how to treat it. I just pull on the belly button where it wants to go and people start crying and it works great and all their problems get resolved. You, you pull on the belly button? Yeah. If, if really? I counter strain, I usually go indirect with things. Uh, I okay. do a lot of counter strain, BLT, indirect myofascial release. Yeah. And I like to rack and crack them here and there as well after doing, you know, the kind of the more soft tissue work that's needed um and um basically if it was a pull that was induced then i'm going to pull the belly button and that seems to be i i just basically take it the way it wants to go sure so if it was pulled on it wants to be pulled on but in which specific direction or is it twisted and pulled or how specifically was it and so it's like you're taking them back through their prenatal days and it gets pretty interesting oh, wow see now at convo i'm gonna have you treat me <laughs> yes yes be always beware the people who have uh belly button piercings or a tattoo on their belly button that means usually we put these things on areas that that have been lesioned but it's very unconscious so we don't understand why so we want to make it prettier or we want to cover it up or whatever reason which is very unconscious but those are the people that you really need to be pulling on their belly buttons. <laughs> yeah. So how do you talk to people about this? Right. Because I, I don't, I imagine you give them some kind of introduction so that they may be aware that, Hey, this may elicit some emotional response and that's okay. Sure. Or do you yeah. just let it happen organically? Well, you know, I don't, my, there's kind of a, a balance for that. I don't tell them upfront because I don't want them to be afraid of it. But if I start to get that, and this comes with some experience, because um, I only got a couple of years of really this more emotional focus. Um, but if I start to notice that, oh, there's some deep stuff here. I'm into that diaphragm now. Okay, something might happen. Or I notice a change in their face or something or breathing pattern change. Then I'll, I'll be like, you know what? Hey, there's emotions in here too. And, and, and a lot of times they come out and, hey, that's, Ask any other patient here. This That's just kind of what happens. You know, like, you're not going to be the only one. It's all good. This is the perfect place for it. Because to really get rid of this pain and this tension and whatever, usually an emotion has to come out with it. You know, like, I almost make it like, oh, by the way, the goal is to cry, you know? Um, 
it just depends on the person though. If I've got, you know, uh, um, a 70 year old lady, you know, it's going to be one way I'm going to talk to her. And if it's like a 40, 50 year old kind of more macho kind of dude, then I'll have a different way, but I'm pretty much getting at the same message either way. It's like, Hey, you know, guys can cry too. It's all good, man. Just, just let her out. <laughs> just whatever, whatever you think they got to hear. And that's, and that's the art of it really is like, what does this person need to hear? If you were this person, cause you're getting to know them, you know, what, what do you think, what's the way they're going to want to have to hear it to, to be able to get rid of this problem. And usually men are full of, are so repressed and all these things because we have problems and, and there's no way we're going to let it out. And when they finally do, wow, it's pretty, whew, it's things cut loose, man. Yeah, that's true. When, when tough men cry, they really cry. Right. Yeah. I, I remember, I mean, this is somewhat related. I was my first delivery in Alaska. I'm in Fairbanks oh, and there's wow. this guy holding his wife's hand. And he was like 300 pounds, tattoos everywhere, earrings everywhere, and, you know, foot long beard. He's like, honey, you're doing great. Keep pushing. You're doing great. And I was so supportive. And the baby was born and he just broke down. Oh, my God. You know, that's what happened to me. Blubbering. And, but uh, I guess that's, you know, somewhat related to what you're saying. Um, that's exactly what happened to me actually <laughs> it was like i was yeah. all good and then it was like wait a minute a, a baby's about like a real live baby my kid oh my god and then it happened and i was just like floodgates crazy. <laughs> crazy so what about what about these patients that seem to be attached to their pain it is their identity oh. they don't know how to live outside of chronic pain it's just who they are sure right well that's 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 a perfect question and i would go right back to the how's this working for you when you're stuck pull on some belly buttons number one <laughs> number, <laughs> just start pulling on their belly button number two <laughs> not haphazardly but kind of take it where it wants to go and number two is ask them when they're telling you about a problem or you perceive a problem, get them to try and bring it up, you know, and, and be like, how, how is this working for you though? Or, or, or is there anything, is there anything good about this pain? And they're of course at first going to be like, no, of course not dummy. You know, why would there be? It's like, well, no, hold on. I mean, like, you know, how just, I mean, pain, pain might be a tough one because it's like, you saying I'm malingering, you <laughs> know, but Basically, when people take it on as their identity, that means they've um, part of it may be just unavoidable, but part of it might also be, well, because I don't, you know, people give me sympathy and I'm known as that guy. Who am I going to be? I'm not going to be. Who am I going to be if I'm not that guy with all the back pain and who everybody feels sorry for? And that's where the attachment is, is because there can't be an attachment without there being something good to it for them, even if it's not overall good or ideal or whatever. There's something good to it, and that's what they're attached to. So find the good in it. Ask them, how does this pain work for you? Like, how could you imagine without the pain? What would you do? You can do that kind of stuff. But like, and like, and, and meanwhile, having this pain, like, how does this work for you? Know, how does this? How is it working for you? How does this? How do, does it have? Is there anything good about it? Just like, anything, you know. There's. There's got to be something. And then you start to work with that a little bit. Well, you know, I kind of, 
I don't really have to do this anymore. Okay. I mean, that's, that's not so bad. And try and get them to look at the pain as something not so bad. Like try and it's like a, that reverse psychology kind of, it's not, but it, it's kind of like that. Um, so, okay. Yeah. So you probably hated, you hated what I hate washing dishes too, man. I tell you, well, good thing you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. I don't have to wash dishes. All right. And then, and then what is in, in, you know, what kind of stuff didn't you like about that? And you just kind of go down that path with them a little bit. And once they accept that the, the pain is not all that bad, then they're not rejecting it. Because when they're rejecting something, then they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're never going to get past it. And so people have to accept what they have first, then they can change it. And so when you're walking down this path with them of helping them maybe to accept um, the predicament that they're in, is that trying to elicit their unconscious mind that is manifesting in their body? Yep. Yes. And these are good talks to have. I mean, you got to have a little time in the session to be able to do it, but these are good talks to have um, to kind of get the body opened up because they're suddenly discovering things that they always knew. They just didn't know that they knew. Okay. So you do like that part of not, you know, of, of, of the pain. Okay. And they're like, yeah, I guess that part isn't so bad. You know, so there is some good about, you know, drinking too much. Yeah. You know, I have fun. I'm in parties a lot and I get to hang out with people. Okay, good. And, and, you know, which is weird because you're like, no, I have to tell them it's bad and whatever. Yes, but that's not getting to the emotion. you got to help them uncover what it is that makes them do it. And once they realize that and they're like, oh, well, now I don't have to be fighting with myself anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had a patient, oh, a few months ago. He was adopted, adopted as a child and coming to me with chronic low back pain, has had an extensive workup over the last decade. Nobody can figure out what's going on with him. Mm. Um, apparently, I mean, you look at him and, and you would think this is a very healthy 40-year-old man. Sure. Yet he, he's living in pain. And we, I forget what, what we were talking about, but at one moment in the conversation, he said, you know what? I think that, I think that I'm attached to my pain. Uh, yeah. I've, you know, this has been going on for a decade. I also, I also am a little bit um, depressed because I have not had a significant other in a number of years. Sure. And I really don't know how to live other than waking up every morning and feeling my right low back hurt. Mm, sure. So it was just it was just very interesting to see him arrive to that conclusion. Yeah. And and well and here you go. This is to that point. Um this uh let's see, Carl Jung, right? He's a super famous he's a psychoanalyst. He was um, you know, kind of Freud's true protege, but way cooler in my opinion. He says, and this goes to your patient. We cannot change anything until we accept it. Mm -hmm. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. And so the whole point here with all, because all of our patients, look, we're all telling them to lose weight. Hey man, you got to eat better. What do I eat though? I don't know. I'm a doctor. They didn't tell me about that. You know, <laughs> what, do, what, I mean, they don't. 
um, you know, don't, you got to eat better that you got to exercise more. And they're like, yeah, I got to exercise more. Okay, good. I'm going to, you know, recommended exercises in my plan and blah, 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 but they're not going to do it or they probably won't. And so what I would ask them is, well, I don't know, exercise, it's like, it's work. You got to get up and do stuff. And what, what do you, you know, okay, you're not doing exercise, but what's good about not doing exercise? What have you, what do you enjoy about not, what do you do when you're not? Well, yeah, I get to wake up later. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like waking up late. Good. Um, I like to this and that. I don't have to, yeah, the whole gym scene. I don't really understand. Good. So this is working for you, you know, to not exercise. Well, you don't have to, you know, and what if you just didn't? And yeah. And then suddenly it just, it's like flips the script and they're like, yeah, I guess I, aren't you supposed to be telling me I have to exercise? Not if you don't want to, I'm not going to tell you to do whatever you're, you're a big kid. You can do it or not. And then they'll just kind of like, cause sometimes what they're tied to is like, mommy always told them what to do. Hmm. And yeah. so, so now if mommy's again telling them, then they're just like, yeah, mom, I'm going to try, but I don't know. And so like kind of being a baby. And so by you, you're, you're like, Hey, man up, you, you be your own keeper, you know, like, what do you want to do? I'm not going to tell you what to do. You know, you're, you're your own boss. And so that's a, that's a very powerful strategy for, you know, and let's face it, the other way ain't working too well. <laughs> I've, I've told people to do things, you make plans with them, you do all this stuff, right. but they're still just embattled with themselves. And as long right. as that's going on, even if they go to the gym for a week, it's not going to be sustainable. Yeah. They have to they have to change it in in themselves and, and they have to accept it in order to change it. Um and real quick, as far as the so this is Jung again, and this is goes to how babies born with the programming of their parents already. He says, Man's unconscious contains all the patterns of life and behavior inherited from his ancestors, so that every human child prior to consciousness is possessed of a potential system of adapted psychic functioning. That is, I have my autopilot, thanks to mom and dad. I may not agree with it always, but that's the autopilot that I got because that's what they had. And that's the best chance I had for surviving in this environment that had a lot to do with them. That's what it is. It's not bad, but sometimes it's not ideal either. Yeah. Wow, Dr. Gordon, you gave me a lot to think about, and I'm excited to learn more from your, your conference or your lecture coming up at Convo, because um, I know you'll be touching on these points again. Totally. So, yeah. Any, any last thoughts? Uh, besides go green and all that? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, you know, there will be actually... I will very briefly be touching on this stuff and what I'm going to try and focus more on since it's convocation and specifically Dr. Lisa DeStefano is the chair and we want anatomy and physiology. I will be trying to go over more of the mechanisms behind this and the anatomy specifically to the specific characterologies or characters that are specific examples of mind, body, types basically of which there are five so i'll be kind of going over that way i haven't stolen all my thunder yet um i'll be going over basically the five different body types that correspond with personality types um that we get from basically this inheritance is that from wilhelm reich yes and lowen yep kind and of a combination between the two 
Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's Mark did touch on that, and I was kind of fascinated by that. So I'll be interested to learn more about it. Yeah. So it'll be well, fun, great. man. I'm excited to yeah. see you guys. It'll be it'll be a blast. It'll be like an MSU homecoming. It will be. And, it will be. It'll be nice yeah. to meet you in person, listen to you you talk, and any any plugs you want to make besides come to your lecture in <sighs> Colorado Springs. <laughs> well, I I just want to make a plug for osteopaths understanding psych. I mean, if this if the osteopathic motto is truly body, mind, spirit, and this was before it was cool to say that, it's for a reason. And I think if we want to be good osteopaths, we have to understand more of the psych stuff. And I would say that the only reason we don't delve into it more is because we're afraid of our own psych stuff, which is fair, but not ideal. You know, I oh, think that's interesting. we need to work on ourselves so that we're not afraid of other patients. Um, emotional releases, emotional responses, psych problems, what have you. Um, if we're confident with our own stuff and you know, we've been through med school and, and, and residency and things, um, these are not easy times. And so we got a lot of stuff to unpack with a therapist, with all of that. And most people don't do it. And for whatever reason, I ended up trying it and loved it. Otherwise I probably wouldn't have. Um, but yeah, I, I would highly recommend every, physician, go to a therapist and see what issues you have. And then you're like, oh, no wonder I don't like these patients because they remind me of myself. <laughs> That's how it goes a lot of times. That's really interesting. Now, where where can you get this vegetotherapy? So you would basically have to just Google that um, mm. and look for cool? just kind of vegetotherapy, local, you know, psychologists, therapists who, who do vegetal therapy. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty common. Uh, I would say it's on the uncommon side, but common enough, like in the okay. Lansing area, certainly there should be a few providers who do it. Yeah. Um, and they could be psychoanalysts. They could be, um, you know, cognitive behavioral, they could be humanistic. There are different, um, kind of movements of psych that that would all do that depending yeah okay so yeah and then if people want to reach out to you dr gordon may they how can they reach out to you um email would be fine um okay. gordon t7 at msu.edu great and i'll include that in the show notes well thanks again for your time and sharing your your hobbies. I'm excited about your vanilla bean farm. <laughs> and uh, really, thank you for, for sharing your progression through osteopathy and, and sharing with us your, your approach to the person, this emotional approach and how the emotions are stored in the tissue of the body. What, what a fascinating realization. It is. Um, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, be well, my friend. You're almost, yeah. you're almost to a fellowship. <laughs> yeah, another uh, another year. We're getting there, though. Time flies. There you go. Okay. You have a great evening, Dr. Gordon. Thanks again. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. What a conversation that has given me a lifetime of food for thought and possibly a different approach on how to look at patients in chronic pain. If you'd like to reach out to Dr. Gordon, you can find his email in the show notes and stay tuned for the next episode.